Hey, it's Jordan. We'll fire up the Chill Factory in about 20 seconds. I just launched the Chill Factory newsletter on LinkedIn. Each issue is inspired by conversations I've had here on the Chill Factory podcast and includes extras to help you, your clients, students, and anyone else you support. So subscribe to the Chill Factory newsletter on LinkedIn and see you there. The first thing is don't be judgmental of where these tools are today because they do make a lot of mistakes, but look at it as a very, very first step of where this is going to go. Hey, welcome and welcome back to The Chill Factory, where we make work, school, relationships and life less stressful with expert interviews, rapid relaxers and excellent resources. I'm Jordan Friedman. Recognize this sound? It's similar to what played in the movie Jaws when the killer menacing shark was looming and circling. That shark and that sound sometimes come to mind when I think about climate change, political division, gun violence, and today's other big crises. It's like these existential challenges are always out there, out to get us, and closing in. Ever-present threats like these keep our stress responses going even if we're not always or knowingly confronting them directly. And now there's a new and seemingly more dangerous shark in town called AI, or artificial intelligence, or you may know it as one of AI's offspring, ChatGPT. It doesn't help our stress and anxiety levels that most of the news around AI and ChatGPT is about the potential harm and destruction that it will bring to our lives, our futures, and our planet. My guest in the Chill Factory today doesn't discount these concerns, but he's also really excited about AI and has a lot of compelling and frankly mind-blowing ideas for how to make it work for our benefit, you, me, and the world. In fact, we spend most of our time talking about how students, teachers, leaders, workers, the AI ignorant, and others can and should use artificial intelligence for good and to future-proof ourselves. And this, in turn, should help AI feel less like a circling shark and more like a life preserver. Matt Strain helps real people prepare for the opportunities with artificial intelligence. He recently left Adobe, where over the course of 17 years, he led teams across marketing, strategy, new business, and research. During his tenure at Adobe's research lab, Matt explored the intersection of AI and creativity. The New York Times recently highlighted Matt's unique AI-generated book, which used AI to blend Chinese medicine and mixology, propelling him into the realm of micro-AI celebrity. In pursuit of AI's potential for positive impact, Matt has launched The Prompt, where he's working with individuals and companies to make AI more accessible and actionable for non-technical audiences. I first asked Matt to define artificial intelligence. AI is a discipline within computer science. And what they're really trying to do is to understand things like language and patterns and how the human brain works, and to a certain extent, to embody that in a program or into a computer language. So essentially, rather than typing into Google or something, a lot of what is behind AI is they're trying to make the computer respond and act uh, much like a person would. So 
imagine a librarian who has read every book and every publication and everything that is out there that you could possibly read. They've read it. They've understood it. And particularly with the generative AI, the, the chat-based work that's coming out, you, know, you can think of it as if you're asking that librarian a question and they're able to understand and assess and think about everything that they've read and forget nothing and repeat it back to you. Let's call it the giant elephant in the room. And let's put this on the table up front so that we can get to some of the other issues we want to talk about. You're out there, you're talking with people and companies and organizations about AI. What are you hearing about artificial intelligence and what's possible doom and gloom? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. There are a lot of concerns, and I break them down into three main categories. The first category would be those concerns that are very much about me and the individual. And I think a lot of people just have a general uh, concern and anxiety around any type of change, particularly when they don't fully understand it. I think related to that is the fear that AI in some ways is going to change or take or modify my job and my income, and that makes you really nervous. And I think there's also a fear of if that was to change, what does all this talk about AI mean to my identity as you know, myself, a worker, and a parent? So that's sort of the, the part of fear which is tied very close to the individual. And then I think there's something a little bit further out, which is some of the things that are coming out of AI, and this ties into fake news and disinformation and questions around, you know, what if I see an image that is, you know, that is a deep fake that, you know, I believe and I shouldn't believe it. Um, and that middle category also has concerns about privacy, um, face recognition, that type of thing comes up. And that's not directly about me. It's more of a societal concern that comes up. And then I'd say there's a third category, which is a little bit further out, which is what if somebody takes AI, does something with it, and comes up with a way to weaponize it or to create you know, a biological weapon or a virus or hack into the power grid. So that's individuals doing things with, a, with bad intent. And then the furthest one out is the one that we've heard you know, a fair amount with some of the AI experts recently, where they talk about an existential threat. And what they're calling this is an alignment issue. And what that means is that the interests of the AI system and the human race aren't necessarily aligned. And that's a longer term, super scary. That's the one that sort of harkens back to you know, science fiction uh, movies from like the, the mid-1950s. What is your big picture take on AI? And especially where the potential benefits of it are concerned. You know, if I net it out, I am incredibly excited about what can happen with AI. And again, there are a couple different levels, right? But the most immediate one, I think from a, a creativity standpoint, the ability to help people think about things that they've never considered before, to learn new things, to write in new ways. And it's not just having AI write something for you, but it's about really thinking about the writing process and the creative process. And this could be words, photos, video, music. So I think it will really sort of augment people's creativity in one sense. The next area that excites me is just basic productivity, right? All those things that we have to do in our daily life or at work that are routine and mundane and just you know can be soul-sucking. A lot of those things AI is going to be able to do. So think about if you're in a workplace, things like proposals or statements of work or all those things that are formulaic that a lot of people do every day. 
AI can do a really good job of doing probably the first 80% of those things. Right? Also things like summarizing long documents or distilling key points or finding insights out of large amounts of data. Right? Those are things that would take people a long time to do and those can now be done in a matter of seconds. And the last thing also is like people who have any kind of accessibility issues, whether they're non-native speakers or they, you know, they, they lack a traditional education or they might have a disability, there are ways to use AI to you know, assist people. Um, one of the things that we looked at at Adobe was a synthetic voice, right? Where you take 20 minutes of someone's voice and it then starts generating new words you know, as if it was their voice. And clearly there are some scary parts of that. But there's also the situation where if somebody loses their voice or is impaired for a period of time, you, know, you can actually not just write what you had mentioned before, but have it speak to someone in your voice, right? So there are things like that that I think for people who do have some form of disability, there are ways to make them feel and come back into the mainstream that might not have been possible before. And I'll say, as someone with a visual impairment, it's challenging for me to do a grammar check and a spell check. Yes, the computer can do it and Google can do it. But now I have started to put things I write into ChatGPT. First I say check grammar and then the text that I've written. And in seconds, it comes back with either everything looks good or here are my suggested ways of changing this text to make it clearer. And it's irresistible. This is part of progressing and adapting to change. This change is going to come whether we want it to or not. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that you know, the challenge is how do you embrace it and acknowledge that the change is going to come? So let's stay on this line of discussion because your fear or excitement about AI can really depend on who you are and what you do or what you want to do. So maybe we could do a little round of what AI can mean for blank. And why don't we start with a high school student? You know, one of the exciting things about AI is if you're having a problem with something, AI can guide you through, you know, a, a lesson plan or a way to address it which doesn't require you exposing your vulnerabilities and insecurities to a parent, friend, or professor. Khan Academy is actually doing some interesting things. So if you ask it a question, instead of coming back with an answer and you know, basically doing your work for you, it's now walking you through a step-by-step -step discussion to help you explore and think about it and come up with a solution on your own. And this is everything from history to math and other things. So it's really not a replacement. It's not going to write your essays for you, although ChatGPT could do that. But it's being set up to help you walk through and think through some of these things. Um, in addition to you know, critical thinking, you can take an essay that you're writing, for example, and put it into ChatGPT and ask it, you know, where are the weaknesses, where are the vulnerabilities in my argument? How would someone from a different culture feel about this thing that I'm writing? You know, is the language inclusive? What things am I missing? So there are all kinds of creative ways that I think a high school student could take this and leverage it. Yeah. A high school student, it could be really a college student, any student who might put an essay uh, that they wrote into ChatGPT and ask it to look for weaknesses in your argument. And 
that made me think, oh, well, that is what a teacher or a professor might do, you know, today or, or in the past. So how could teachers, professors, instructors use AI in productive, positive, exciting ways? Yeah, so here's an example. I was talking with a, with a friend who had done a lot of work in the education space. There could be some interesting ways to save teachers' time and to get consistency across all students for feedback on their essays, right? Things that they might want to think about to improve the essay with the final essay still being submitted to a teacher. And, you know, it could then be that an AI system evaluated the essay on certain criteria and fed that input to the professor so that they could, you know, have the time to actually think about it and provide feedback. So I think that's one of the things that will play out as we go forward is what is that balance between what the systems do and what the professor does. And keep in mind, you could also train the system based on feedback that a specific professor did over you know, 100 papers, and the system would learn the types of things that they look for and how they react to things. Um, the second thing in the education space that gets really interesting is I'm sure you and I have very different learning styles, and it may take us you know, half of our life to realize that we've got you know, some either exceptional traits or some things that are lacking. But if you're using AI, very quickly it could determine my learning style, my advantages and disadvantages to different approaches, and come up with a personalized learning approach that is specific and different for each of us. Mm. Um, and it's also one of those issues where if you're a longtime teacher, you know, it's scary, right? What does that mean to my job? Is AI gonna replace my job? The people I know in the education field feel very, very strongly that AI is gonna augment teachers, and the one thing that we will not be able to replace is a great teacher in front of kids, face-to-face, -face, who, you know, who can look at the student and tell when they're struggling, tell when they need to be motivated, and have that personal connection. Yeah, it does seem like augmentation is a really key part of this. And if you are in a profession and you see that, let's say, your work as an editor, or at least some of it, is going to disappear as you know it because now AI can do exactly what you've been doing. I think what I hear you saying is that that doesn't mean the door closes completely on everything or on that particular part of your work because you might want to ask the question, okay, if that's the case, how can I, the human being, augment that? How can I bring what my skills still are, what my talents still are, and incorporate it into this process so that I'm still relevant. Absolutely. Future-proofing is the word that I've been seeing coming up more and more, which basically means what are those skills and abilities and mindsets that I need to take on to make sure that I am relevant and you know, important and have a, a strong career path going forward. Okay, next group. We've talked a bit about editors. What about writers and content producers? For content producers, which I think if, if you're thinking of marketers and social media types and so forth, I mean, there's a very interesting opportunity to use the data that is being collected to say, this is a story or an offer or some copy that would be of interest to Jordan, but not necessarily to Matt. I think for people who are writers, if you think about the ability to access everything that's been written in the past 
every style of author, every interaction, comparison between authors, it's going to allow people to explore ideas much more deeply and with more sophistication than they have in the past. I think in general, I kind of look at it as that creative muse, right? The person who would sit by your side and you could ask it some questions about, you could say, huh, I never thought about going down this path. What if I combined this thought with another thought? And in reality, those are things that you probably wouldn't have the time or resources to explore before. But now you could be like, what if I took this and I asked somebody who is a you know, Tunisian carpet weaver how they might integrate these two things? And it will come up with a, you know, a plausible response to that, which probably isn't what you want to write, but it might trigger a couple interesting ideas that could take you in a new direction. Or if you're writing a novel and you want to do background research on a, on a character or a country or you know, a particular issue that somebody has, you could go through the ideation process, you know, potentially much faster using some of these uh, AI tools. Yeah, that is really interesting. And the next group I wanted to ask you about is healthcare providers and coaches and uh, mental health counselors. You made me think that, wow, you could apply the same type of cultural sensitivity to patients who might be coming into your practice because we know that's a challenge in healthcare where you may talk to someone from the northeastern U.S. one way, but somebody from Ecuador or somebody from Thailand is not going to understand that same type of communication, even the same words. So to be able to use AI to help you provide that person with better care, that's incredible. Yeah, no, you are spot on with that. Personally, my mom is 85 years old. She's dealing with progressive Parkinson's. And I was back visiting her a couple months ago, and it was really hard because she was, you know, in and out of sort of mental clarity, and I was struggling with how to be compassionate, but also to get some points across. So I took a break, I went for a walk, and I used ChatGPT, and I said, how would, you know, the medical writer Atul Gawande, who's got a fabulous book called Being Mortal, I said, how would he react to a parent who is saying these things and clearly hallucinating and making some things up, how should I respond? And it came back with a five or six point note telling me it's not about trying to inform them what the right thing to do, is what they need is to feel heard and listened to and respected. And it also gave me some advice on how someone in that situation fears losing their independence and how I could help give them their independence back, which resulted in my bringing in uh, Vietnamese spring rolls and a bottle of wine because that made her feel young and alive and not sure that saved her life and kept her on the planet, but it certainly contributed to it. There are two other things in that that are worth noting quickly. One is things like uh, drug discovery and drug development is incredibly faster and so much less expensive. So if you think about the move from testing in people, you know, in vivo to in vitro, where they went from in people to in labs, they're now able to do drug discovery you know, in computers, which they're calling in silico. So that basically brings the speed you know, up significantly from like five years to about a year, if I recall correctly. And the cost comes down by like you know, a factor of 10 in doing this. So basically it means better drugs to market more quickly and also some of the conditions that are more on the fringe will probably be addressed in ways that they've never been addressed before. There are a couple of more groupings of people I want to get to on 
uh, this list of how different folks might use AI. And the next one is leaders of companies and institutions. How can they think about AI? How can they use it for good, for progress, and for, for the benefit of the people who they work with? Yeah, so there's a lot in that. I think on the one, there's just basic business performance, right? So all of these tools can be used to optimize for any business result that you wanted. Um, so I think that's that's the first one. But I think the second one is for team management, right? If you've got a large distributed team, how do you get people trained? How do you identify when they need support? How do you make things like meetings run more smoothly? So scary fact, I left Adobe after 17 years and I calculated that I sat in 50,000 meetings. That's five zero. So that's a soul crushing number. But <laughs> that is really depressing. Matt. I can guarantee it is. Uh, I can guarantee you that not all of those meetings were as productive as they could be. So you know, there's automation around meetings to help figure out what it is you want to do, to take notes, to track action items. And some of this sounds pretty mundane, but if you can make meetings and interactions between people and communications with people more clear, you know, that would help people dramatically. I mean, I actually read a stat years ago from a report that said the number one contributor to heart disease was someone's relationship with their manager. And, you know, as we know, a lot of that is around bad communication and bad goals. Um, and I experimented with ChatGPT where you could put in and say, you know, this is my personality type, whether it's a Myers-Briggs or an Enneagram or something else. I work for someone like this. You know, you put in what you know about them. We're having this problem. You know, how should I address it? And it comes up with a suggestion on, oh, if Matt is this type of manager, this is the best way to provide him with information. He likes this in advance. He doesn't want to be caught by surprise. He likes to have some time to think about things. So it, it can tell you how to interact with other people in a more productive way. One of the really important parts of this is, no matter where you are in an organization, if you're on top of it and you can communicate what AI means to your job or your group or your company, I think there's a chance for people that may not have seen that they had a seat at the table for some of these big discussions to jump in if they track and understand and have you know thoughtful insights on what AI can mean for their company and for their industry. I think there's a, there's a chance for people who might have felt unheard in the past to jump in and be part of the conversations. Yeah, and I think we also need to recognize that for most of the world, it has been just six months that we've been talking about this in such a public way. So if we came back together in six months, this whole discussion could change or it could certainly evolve because all of this stuff is, is changing, it seems, by the day. Sometimes faster than a day. AI has been around as a academic discipline. It's been integrated into products and companies for a long time. But there is something about the pace over the last six months that is, that is different from what it's been before. And that's where some of the excitement and also some of the fear is coming from. Matt, if you are just an individual listening who is not in one of those groups that we talked about, and, and someone who doesn't really know very much about AI, uh, who has never looked at ChatGPT, and that still includes a lot of people, what would be your advice to them about how to 
you know, learn about it and see some of the positives of this? The first thing is don't be judgmental of where these tools are today because they do make a lot of mistakes. But look at it as a very, very first step of where this is going to go. Um, secondly, try to be curious and lean in and start using it. So I carry ChatGPT on my iPhone everywhere I go. If I'm in the grocery store and I want to know what to make for dinner, I'll know the ingredients that I have at home and I'll ask it for a recipe based on three or four different ingredients. I literally will try using it all throughout the day. And I think for somebody who isn't familiar with it, these tools are now so easy to use that really it's very similar entering it to what you'd enter in Google. The results are very, very different. The two main ones that I would start with are ChatGPT and also Bard from Google. So when you start a new Google Doc, there's a little icon on the top left that says something along the lines of, can I help you write this? I think the best thing to do is just to get started using it, to experiment with it. And when you do that, you'll realize that it's not as scary as you may have thought it was. And you'll also just have a better understanding of the limitations and how things work. But even some of the longer term issues, when you hear people talking about the risks of AI, you'll have a better grounding for how you want to respond to that. Matt Strain, founder of The Prompt, thanks so much for coming by The Chill Factory. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I think what you're doing in trying to help people wrap their heads around this and figure out how to integrate it and reduce any related anxiety is super, super important. So thank you for doing this. Learn more about Matt, his work, and AI in the show notes. And although it may be a little stressful, we've also put a link in there to a really cool video of a performance of that Jaws theme I mentioned in the intro. I want to take a minute to note the recent passing of two giants of chill music. First is pianist George Winston, the superstar of the New Age record label Wyndham Hill in the 80s and 90s, even though Winston didn't consider himself a New Age artist. George Winston sold millions of lovely contemplative albums including Autumn, Winter into Spring, and the mega-popular December, a holiday classic that you've probably heard even if you didn't know George Winston, the musician. We also lost Brazilian singer Estrue Gilberto, who in the 1960s and almost single-handedly globalized gentle and breezy bossa nova music with one of the most chill and recognizable songs of all time, The Girl from Ipanema, which was a collaboration with American saxophonist Stan Getz. Funny thing is, Gilberto wasn't even a singer. The story goes that she had the best English of anyone in the New York City recording studio that day, so she gave it a try. And thankfully, the rest is history. It's quitting time for this episode of The Chill Factory. I'm Jordan Friedman. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to follow The Chill Factory wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll know when new episodes are available. And there's always more at thechillfactory.net. And as ChatGPT said, when I asked it to create an original quote about adapting to progress, embrace progress, for it is not the destination, but the ever-changing journey that shapes our future. Not bad.